Today's scripture reading is from John 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of our Lord. Thank you, Crystal. We are starting a new study today, and I'm really pumped after, you know, all these years of ministry, I've never done a series on the miracles of Jesus. By the way, John tells us about only seven of them. The other gospel writers will tell us about some that the, we don't find in the gospel of John. And just sort of a note, this is one of the series in which we will have community groups, small groups, talking about what we're looking at on Sundays, a place to bring like doubts and questions and challenges and ideas. And so please get into a community group. That's like one of our engines for building our family here at Granada. There's one at the 10 o'clock hour, if you come an hour early on Sundays and upstairs, there's a community group. I think Dave and Morelli are leading that one. And there's one on um, Sunday right after this service led by John and Olivia Hammer. Um, we'd love for you to be a part of that. There's one, some later on, so there's plenty of them and they're different locations in the city. Well, we begin today by asking the question, well, have you ever witnessed a miracle? Has a miracle ever happened in your life or in the life of somebody you know? I was reading a fascinating story um, about a, a medical student. His name is Ryan Jones. He was studying at University of Virginia in Charlottesville and actually was third year in medical school. And by the way, in medical school, they throw challenging cases at you. And one way they do it is they bring actors in, and maybe as you're going through a hospital, there'll be somebody in a bed, and you interview them, you talk to them, you examine them, and then at the end of that, by the way, a physician proctor is there watching you do that, listening to the conversation, and then afterward, you talk to the patient, but you also tell the proctor 
what you have seen. And like I said, for Ryan Jones, it was his third year in medical school, and um, he was having one of those exams. And after going to the first patient, he had given the diagnosis and a little bit of words to the patient and then to the, to the physician who was his proctor, and he went to the second patient. He's like, oh, he didn't feel like he did very well on the first patient. And the second patient was presented to him as he asked questions of a case of an aortic aneurysm. And what that is, is the aorta is that large artery that ascends from the top of your heart and feeds blood out into the rest of the body. It was a 75-year-old retired engineer, and his name was Jim. And so as in all the other cases, this actor, he went in and asked questions. And there's certain signs of this, like, for example, a pulsating coming from your abdomen. There can even actually be a sound because this is taking place. Um, and so um, here's Ryan. He's meeting with this patient. He said, with Jim, I wasn't expecting to find anything, of course. He was a pretend patient. I vividly recall the whoa moment when I felt a pulsating mass right there where the aorta, aorta should be. And at this point, he steps back from the examining table. He's like, okay, I know this is a pretend patient. I know this is like one of these exams, but I think this is actually happening. And by the way, this can be very serious and often is life-threatening. And so it was then that Ryan sort of gets out of character. He goes to the patient. He's like, did you know that you might have an abdominal aortic aneurysm? But the guy, Jim, the engineer in the bed, he stays in character. Well, what's an aneurysm? <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. And later he learned that this guy, Jim, who had volunteered to be such a, an actor, knew of none of those. He didn't complain of any of these symptoms. That day, Ryan told his physician Proctor what he discovered, and then he moved on to the next patient, right? But they took Jim, and they began to run some tests on him and find out, oh my goodness, he actually had the condition he was supposed to fake having. Imagine that. And by the way, afterwards, he was able to get life-correcting surgery for this. And by the way, there was a huge firestorm. You can see this article, UA, uh, UVA medical student diagnoses actor with life-threatening condition. And so it wasn't just ABC, NBC, all of this. And uh, Ryan was just glad that he got a good grade, you know, on that part, <laughs> the part of the exam. But think about this. And afterwards, what's really cool, this guy and his wife came back to thank him. And it's like, okay, is, is that a miracle? Was God, I mean, did God bring about this series of events, this coincidence to bring about this happening? You see, this study is about miracles and asking, does God show up in our world in extraordinary ways like this? Is this happening around us? Can we look for this to happen, to believe? Do we believe that it does happen? Have you ever experienced this? And the reason we look at this is because it's here we will see in the miracles of Jesus that we discover the meaning of Jesus' ministry, the love and power of God showing up in our world to open our eyes, the eyes of our heart, to the reality of the presence of God. Would you pray together with me? Lord God, we have so many questions, and it's not like we don't have a lot of doubt too. We hear people say things happened, and we think, probably not. 
And yet we know, Lord, in our heart of hearts that there's more going on in our world than we can write in our books or see in our microscopes. And so I pray that you'll teach us about this, Lord. Not that we would not just know about this, but we might know about you. And we thank you and pray in Jesus' name, amen. In the book of Job, we read these words, he, that's God, performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. Now, this is a friend of Job saying, look, God is doing stuff. It's so much bigger than you. You couldn't possibly know what God is up to. All of these amazing things. And I read this and I think, well, I'm not sure we believe this. I mean, we're living in a world that we believe. We're sort of figuring everything out, right? I mean, if we haven't figured it out, well, we, we're going to figure it out before long. And so we have little room in our way of thinking for things that might be beyond us, for the miraculous, and even for God himself. And if there is a God, we sort of believe he's far away. He's left us on our, on our own to figure this stuff out. And this is what we're taught. We're taught our universe is like this closed system. We sort of get what we get scientifically, and, and we understand what's happening around us. Like, there's no God. There's no heaven. There's no hell. There's no mystery to this. As Carl Sagan, if you've heard of him, once said, he said, the cosmos is all that is or was or ever will be. And so if we're given a God, you might call him, some have called him this, a God of the gaps, right? Like we know before modern science, people looked around, if there was something they couldn't understand, they said, oh God, God had to do that because we can't make sense of it. But if science is sort of unrolling and showing us more and more explanations, well, hold on a minute. We, we invoke the name of God a lot less because we sort of had this stuff figured out, right? It's like a piece in a puzzle. And until we had all those pieces, we would say God did this and God did that. And now these little gaps have gotten super tiny. And so we hardly ever talk about God. We don't feel like we need to invoke the name of God. By the way, this started in our world in the 1680s with the advent of deism. And by the way, by the time of our founding father, Thomas Jefferson, this stuff was thick in the beginning of our country. I don't know if you know this, but, but uh, Jefferson at one point decided he would assemble his own version of the Gospels. So he got copies of the Bible. You'll see a copy of one of these. And he started to cut out sections that he believed should be in the story about Jesus. Right? And, and so he cut and pasted from some different editions. He also took some Latin and he took some Greek and he did some study. And let me tell you what he did. He left out everything that was a miracle. Because it's just the teachings of Jesus. I mean, the moral teachings. He's a great teacher, right? I mean, we can all agree on that. And he assembled his own book. And by the way, at the end of his gospel, it literally ends with these words. There laid they Jesus and rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. There's no resurrection. Jesus is still in the tomb. You can see at the end of the text where it read. That's literally how it ends. And you're like, well, really? Now, I, I look at that, and I, I would fault Jefferson if I didn't find almost all of us do this, right? We, we cut those parts out of the Bible. They're like, well, not so much. I, I, I don't think I really need that in my Bible. 
right? Or if we're not like that, I mean, how many of us live our lives in such a way we're really not sure about God or the engagement of God? So we pray prayers, and we we don't really believe God is going to answer those prayers. Or we make our prayers so weak, of course he's going to answer those prayers. We're not not saying anything, right? Because this stuff just, this isn't real. And by the way, we may even like the fact that God isn't in the picture because, well, I can live my life however I want. I can do whatever I choose. God isn't in the mix. Does it matter who I am and how I live then? But here's the amazing thing. Other than the God of the gaps, the reality is the whole stuff in our world we cannot explain. You know, we don't even know. The simple answer to the question is like, why is there something rather than nothing. Where did all of this stuff come from? You see, we don't need God to fill our gaps. We don't have a story. We have nothing. We don't have a cosmos, a world at all. And that leads me to Jesus, because Jesus's purpose in coming into the world, as the Gospel of John explains it, is sort of like this. He says this, no one has ever seen God. God doesn't have a physical body like we do. But the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is at the Father's side, has made him known. And so Jesus came into the world with this specific purpose to be like, okay, I I want you to know first there is God, and I want you to know who God is. I want you to know what God is about so that you can actually know God. And that's my prayer for this study as we walk through the miracles of Jesus. Now, today we start with Jesus' first miracle. And I think here he's trying to show us how, how his miracles, how he can lead us to life and lead us to joy. John is the only gospel writer who tells us about this miracle. Some of them they all talk about, like the feeding of, of the uh, crowds. But only John tells us this. Let me tell you why. He lived longer than any disciple of Jesus, and he had a lot of time to meditate on who Jesus is, and he has carefully chosen what he wants to share with us from Jesus' life so that we know and come to walk with and enjoy Jesus. Toward the end of his book, he says, look, you guys, if I were to tell you everything about Jesus, there would not be enough books around. There's way too much. And so what I'm going to tell you is I'm going to tell you what you need to know, what I believe you need to know. And of course, what we read here is this. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now I read this section and I'm like, okay, you got to be kidding me, John. You get to choose what you tell me about Jesus' life. I know he did too much for you to write down. But even and when I think of Jesus, this is his first public act. And I say, come on, Jesus, if you're going to put yourself out there, if you want people to know who you are, like um, maybe you should raise somebody from the dead. I think I get people attention, attention. Or why don't you heal someone in a public event where everybody can see? Or better, get those thousands of people and feed all of them and let them realize you started with like almost no food. Do that. But instead, Jesus creates 120 gallons of excellent wine to keep a party going? You gotta be kidding me. What is going on here? Why did he do this? Well, first, there is a wedding crisis. 
In Jesus' day, the most important celebration of your entire life would be your wedding day, and your dad would start preparing for it the moment you're born. He would start getting ready, saving up wine and other resources that would be needed. And everybody in your community would be invited out. And this was a celebration. I mean, I know I've been to some awesome wedding receptions in which I'm like, oh man, how much did these guys spend? You gotta, I mean, they, they, could, choose a, they could choose a house or this. I choose the house, you know. Their wedding celebrations averaged a week of feasting. In which every day at the end of your day, you're over there at that house, they're pouring wine, they're serving the best stuff that they have. That's the way it would work. These were joyous celebrations. And Jesus was invited to share in the joy of this occasion. And at some point, Jesus' mother comes to him and tells him the wine has run out. That means shame is going to fall on this family. This will be a story they talk about in this community for years, and it will always be associated with this couple when it should only be about, about joy. Now, when we look closely at the miracles of Jesus, he's always meeting human needs. Jesus performed his miracles out of, out of love and compassion, and often you see this is where God shows up in your life, where you're in need, where only he can act where you are desperate and you need his intervention. And by the way, this would be a great place to say, okay, you're, talking, you're throwing these words around. What is a miracle? What actually is a miracle? We could say around us like, come on, everything is a miracle. I don't know if you know it, you're seated, you're still right now, but our earth is moving as it rotates about 1,000 miles an hour you're moving. But you also know where you're sitting still, around our sun, our earth is traveling approximately 67,000 miles an hour. So without even moving, if you stay in bed all day, you will travel over a million and a half miles. But did you know this? That our Milky Way galaxy rotates at such an extent that on the periphery of the Milky Way, it is moving 483,000 miles an hour. Now, let me, don't get me started. If we talk about the human body and the way our bodies function, even at the cellular biochemical level, or, or we talk about nature that's around us, you'd be like, whoa, 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 stop. There are a lot of miracles. Well, let me tell you, that's not actually the definition of a miracle. But, but listen to Elizabeth Barrett Browning. She said, earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush of fire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit round and uh, they just pluck blackberries, she said. These are wonders, and you're living in the midst of them. But do you know what a miracle is? It's an intrusion into that. Miracles are deliberate acts by God to reveal his presence and power. They serve as signs pointing to deeper reality, affirming the existence of the supernatural. This is beyond nature, you guys and God's purpose behind all things. They also teach about God's grace and about God's kindness. They're supernatural. That's why it's beyond the ordinary is the title given to this series. Now, let me get back to the party. We'll see it happening here. And I think we'll also see why we need miracles. It really seems simple. The wine has run out, right? Now, to understand what this means, you need to know what a powerful metaphor this is, wine, among the Jewish people. Literally, the rabbis said, wine equals, do you know what it is? It's joy. 
It's the sign of gifts. It's, it's a sign of the goodness and gifts of God, joy in your life. And by the way, all of us know this from our hearts. This is the thing we are chasing. We call it pursuing happiness, but it goes deeper than that. Maybe you're doing it in your work. You've been working at something for a long time, and finally it happens. You're like, oh, that's awesome, right? Or maybe it's through your marriage or perhaps through your children, through accumulating experiences. It could be through possessions that you have. Where have you looked for joy? Do you, do you remember when you first fell in love? You're like, oh, man, I, I don't ever want this to end. I don't want it to end, but it, but it does. Or maybe you remember moving into your first house. Right, Sandy? I remember Sandy and I, because we had been married a long time. We just couldn't afford a house we were living at the time. I remember going in, but then I remember, I, I think I loved this house more before the roof leaked. You know, before, before there was stuff to deal with that was here. You move in, and a few years later, it's old hat. The original joy and satisfaction are gone. Earthly joy always wears thin. And this is why we always seem like we're in an, an endless search for more. It never lasts long enough, and it never goes deep enough in us. You know, one day Jesus met a woman who'd been pursuing joy from one man to another, but she remained thirsty. She'd had five husbands, and the guy she was with, she didn't even bother marrying him. I mean, that probably wasn't going to be long, right? It just wasn't enough. And Jesus told her this. He said, you're going to be thirsty your whole life until you discover something that will quench your deep thirst, and I can do that for you, he said. You see, that's the picture of the wedding party. The wine always runs out. I mean, the vacation always ends. Sex can only last so long. The new car smell is now gone. The puppy doesn't stay a puppy. I love puppies. We all know this. It is precisely those times when we feel the most joy and satisfaction. You get to that thing that you're like, there has to be more. We begin, we realize we're thirsty. So, you know, I ask, are you thirsty? Do you recognize that inner thirst that you have? I remember first reading a book by this guy. His name is Douglas Copeland. Maybe you've never heard of him. He was the guy who, um, there he is, who coined the term Gen X. And you know, he grew up when his parents split up. He, nobody taught him about God. His, his life was filled with, with a, a, an absence of God, if you could say that. And this, this is the way he, he grew up feeling this longing and this hunger. And, and he wrote a bunch of books. One of the books he wrote actually has the title, Life Without God. And he talks about this life. And there's a point in here in where he, which he gets honest from his heart about this. And look at what he says in this book, Life Without God. My secret is that I need God, that I am sick and can no longer make it alone. I need God to help me give because I no longer seem capable of giving. If you found yourself like when you hear people talking about ways to serve and give, you just can't do that. He says, to help me be kind as I no longer seem capable of kindness, to help me love as I seem beyond being able to love. He's like, I, I can't do this with what I've been given. If there isn't a God, how am I going to do these things? His is a joyless existence. And if you listen to his heart, he's thirsty for more. I, I need God. You see, we need to know that there is more than matter and energy in our world. That there's, there's one who's transcendent, that we're living in the middle of mystery. We need God to be lifted from darkness to joy. You know, C.S. Lewis, the great writer, said there are only four ways as human beings that we typically deal 
with this unmet hunger for joy. He says, first of all, you may keep looking, right? Try another career. It's probably, it may not be the one you're in. It's not happening there. Or you need another spouse, right? It's probably their fault. Or you need another cruise or another church or another city. Another something is what you tell yourself. Or you can blame the universe and just say, this life is just a big, cruel joke. It's just not delivering. Never delivered for me. Or you can blame yourself. Maybe there's something you've done to deserve the life that you've been given. Or, he says, you can find the wellspring welling up to life. Here's what Jesus did. It says, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim, and he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. Okay, so we asked for water to be put in these jars. And by the way, John wants to tell us about these jars because they're used for obedience to the law. Everything had to be washed. Your hands, each of the dishes between the courses of the meal, all of the cups, and there was a certain way to do it, and you had to do it right. This represented all that the law stood for, all that the Jewish people believed they needed to do to get to this good place with God. And by the way, they devoted themselves to this. They staggered under the burden of keeping it, and they could never do enough or be enough, but it never gave them the joy that their hearts longed for because it couldn't bring them home to God. And here is Jesus taking this water of purity in these stone jars, and what is he doing? He's giving the wine of joy that we could never attain on our own. He's teaching this new way of grace. You see, this is a sign to show this. He's like, he's saying, look, hey, it's out with the old covenant where you thought it was about that, and it's in with the new covenant. It's all my gift. It's freely given to you. Here is what Jesus came to do. You know, and the prophets talked about this. You can read this all across the Old Testament. They're all talking about this day is coming, you guys. Here, here's Isaiah. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They will obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. I mean, isn't that the day that what we want? This is the reality, this beautiful thing that God has planned. Jesus plans a great banquet in the future. This is what we're told. Then he, Jesus, told them, now draw some out. Take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Now, I do love the way that it said, it said in passing, the water that had been turned into wine. What? Jesus, why don't you tell everybody? Why don't, you know, why are you not making a big deal of this? You should be doing it. But the reality is this is not a parlor trick to impress anyone or gain attention. It is a miracle, but it's one even the master of ceremonies doesn't know that Jesus has done. And the funny thing in the story is the guy who has no idea what Jesus has done is announcing it to everybody. This is the great wine, you guys. He doesn't even know. 
But that's it. Jesus never makes the miracles about himself, though all of us, all of them point to him. And think about that for a moment. If you had that kind of power and you wanted people to believe, you'd make every miracle into a major production, right? The cameras would be rolling and they'd be zooming in in the right place and time. Jesus does none of that. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. You see, it's a sign. Jesus comes to give us the joy God planned for us when he first made us. He gave a, came, come to give us a joy that the law could never provide, but only symbolize a life with God. And that is that fourth way, Lewis said. He says to see in all of your longing that you've actually been missing God. He said, look, it works like this. If you have hunger and it's natural to us as human beings, there got to be food on earth, right? Because it's natural to us. If you long for intimacy, there's, there's some, something called sex in our world, he said. So what if you discover in yourself a need that is as deep as, as food or, or any other need that nothing in this world will meet, then you must realize it's got to come from another world. You were made for another world. And this is the reality. You see, this scene doesn't only tell us what Jesus did, but it's what he wants to do in every one of us for you too and for me. He wants us to experience this joy. You say, well, how can that happen? Maybe we, you notice that we skipped over Jesus's mother, Mary. This is only one of two times that John tells us anything about her. This is what happens when she sees the wedding crisis. Jesus's mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, this makes Jesus sound like he's being harsh to his own mom, but he's not. He is explaining what performing this miracle will cost. Because as his first public acts, this is going to put him on a trajectory. Guess where it's going to lead? It's going to lead to the cross. And by the way, he's saying this because the provision of joy in our lives is going to be at great cost to him. That's why he says that. He only mentions his hour when he's talking about that. He's laying down his life for our joy. He takes on the sorrow and shame of the cross so that we might have this living way of a, of a relationship with the Father, that we might know that we are loved by God and that God is for us, and you might enjoy this communion with the living God. You see, I think we desire a miracle, but what our hearts really long for is the God of miracles. The God of miracles. This joy runs out because we're looking for it in things in our lives. And the miracle of God is that we get fellowship with him. Think about it. I think about it like this. If my wife gives me a gift, I don't cherish the gift. That's going to wear out. It's going to depreciate. It's not going to last forever. I cherish the love of my wife, which I'm so thankful is growing that she still wants to give me gifts. And I'm surprised, right? But it's beautiful. The gift will pass away.
would be dead. First, she had never done this before, but the day before she took hydrogen peroxide and she made her hair like blonde white. And under the water, she would not have been seen if that weren't the case. But also, just as this happened to her, her sister got bitten by a crab on her foot. And when she swung around, she saw Johnny underwater and she could grab her before she drifted away. So while there were these two amazing experiences in her life, the thing is, God saved her life, but he's never cured her from her spinal injury. She has spent 56 years paralyzed from the shoulders down. You'll see a picture of her, and she's painting with a brush. I know maybe you already showed that, um, in her mouth. Don't get me wrong, thousands of people have prayed years have been trying and difficult, but in the process, she's written over 40 books. She's talked to thousands of people about Jesus. And for Johnny, the miracle has come. Let me tell you how she explains it. She says, he has chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. The more intense the pain, the closer his embrace. She still has to be bathed and toileted and taken care of every day. But you know an amazing thing is I got to know her as a young person. I looked at this person and been, how did she not become bitter? How did she not become contorted and destroyed by this immense loss in her life? Jesus has made her into an extraordinary woman. And she has experienced the unending wine of the joy of Jesus through all of these years. As I look at her life, I think that that's a work of God. You see, God's goal in his miracles is to give you himself. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Did you get that last part? The end result wasn't the disciples say, oh yeah, I believe in miracles. Oh yeah, they can. They believed in Jesus. That's the goal in this, what we are after. I want to meet you, Jesus. I want to believe in him. I want you to meet the God of miracles, not the miracles of God, that you may know his presence in your life. So today I want to invite you on a journey. Get into a community group. Talk about this with other people, other seven weeks until uh, Palm Sunday that we'll be in this study. Seek the God of miracles rather than the miracles of God. And ask God in your life to reveal his presence to you. Would you pray with me? Father, it's really true. It's, it's like we've planned in our world in such a way that we could ease you out of our lives to think that this world works and you're not needed. Or maybe to think my life works and you're not needed. I pray that during these days you'll reveal your presence to us so that we would know that you have come to us in Jesus. You have loved us in him. And that cross of Jesus has opened the way for us to have fellowship with you, to become a people, to know your presence and your love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.